0: Visit
1: PlannedParenthood.org/future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams, so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N dot com. Atlassian.
2: Every time I cough now, I'm just like, <laughs> so I should go. I should just go now. But it's not. it's not real coughing. It's just like talking coughing. Yeah, we're okay. We're fine. Everything's yeah. totally fine. Hello, oh, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Jane Costin. Joining me, as always, is ProPublica's Dara Lind and Vox's science reporter Brian Resnick to talk about... Coronavirus! Woo! Okay, not actually. Viral whoa. outbreaks,
0: always <laughs> super fun. See, yes. we assume that this episode is going to be listened to primarily by people who are, for one reason or another, involuntary or involuntary isolation, because I know that if I were quarantined for several weeks, the first thing I would want to do would be to listen to my favorite politics and policy podcasts. Absolutely.
3: There's a potentially a lot of time to kill in the future for Pretty people much. in yep. this country. So, you know, the more content you can create, the better. You're is actually this, performing a good public service. This
2: could also be the time I find. Finally, learn how to play a card game of any kind. And members of the Weeds Facebook group, perhaps while you are quarantined, this message is for you. As the community grows, certain topics and conversations occasionally get heated, which isn't fun for anyone involved. To help you all continue to have respectful civil dialogue, we're partnering with the University of Texas and Spaceship Media on a fantastic research project called the Weeds Conversations. Help us develop solutions for quality online conversations and dive into fascinating discussions with your your fellow WEEDS listeners in the process. We're especially interested in hearing from voices and backgrounds that are traditionally underrepresented. Interested in participating? Head over to our Facebook group where you can fill out a survey to join. So today's conversation on coronavirus, which is probably the thing that you have heard the most about if you have been watching any television or any medium whatsoever, But we wanted to put this in context, and I think Brian has been doing some really terrific reporting on what coronavirus means, how it started, and how this outbreak ends, which I think are basically the questions that I've seen, also the random bullshit questions that are caused by people having too much access to Instagram and not enough access to news. So let's start out with the very basics. What is coronavirus and how did we get here?
3: So coronavirus, the name Corona's crown, it actually is a reference to what the virus looks like under a microscope. It has like a, has these kind of spiky proteins around a center circle. So it kind of looks like a crown. So that's that's where the name comes from. But coronaviruses are not new to science. They're not new to people. Some of them even affect people. So currently, there are five coronaviruses that routinely infect people, and they usually present as the common cold. These are out there in the environment. Mm-hmm. It's either four or five coronaviruses that are just endemic. They're out there in the world. But There are other coronaviruses that exist in animals that occasionally make the jump over from animals to humans, and they have a lot of potential to cause outbreaks, pandemics. If you recall, the 2003 SARS outbreak that, that was actually pretty well contained within a year, and then there was MERS some years later. So this is a family of viruses that is known to infect animals and humans, the ones that are in animals are kind of scary to us because our human immune systems haven't seen them before and scientists you know each one is a little different so this outbreak is a little different than SARS this virus seems to have different parameters and some of the scariest and the most uncomfortable things to to reckon with at the beginning of an outbreak like this is that scientists don't ex- actually know the complete parameters of this virus. They don't know exactly how it spreads. They don't know exactly how virulent it is. So the early weeks of an outbreak, and keep in mind, this virus was not known to science like two months ago. So everything we've learned about this virus has been just an amazing crash course in scientific collaboration and and the world getting together. This is a virus that's new, but also related to ones that are familiar.
2: And it's interesting you bring up people coming together to learn about this because part of why this particular virus is so dangerous is because people are coming together in large groups. It began in areas of incredible population density. And one of the things about the virus is that because it's not like Ebola, it's not like diseases where the infection is itself incredibly dangerous to most people. You can be ambulatory walking around and have this and be able to spread it to people who might be more vulnerable to it.
3: Yeah.
0: Right. And and I think this is also where what you were saying about the parameters is super important because if you think about the responses to the public health responses to infectious disease is like one, prevention and two, containment and like treatment of people who are already or might be infected and monitoring of people who might be infected. like. In order to know how to deal with the people who might be infected group, you have to know how long it's going to be before symptoms start showing up. And so some of the most worrisome things that we've seen in the last few weeks as it's become increasingly clear that after what seemed to be a very successful initial containment, this has in fact spread to more countries or stories where people, you know, were initially tested and tested negative and then tested positive because the test wasn't fully developed enough because science wasn't familiar enough with the virus. Cases where people who had been asymptomatic for a long period of time then developed symptoms. All of these are things that if we understood in a textbook sense, what the virus was, we would understand how to respond to. But as it is with learning on the fly, the potential for successful containment starts getting questioned. And so, like, how do you successfully contain a virus that you don't yet understand? And like, does it seem like the kind of public response is learning on the fly to this? Or are we still kind of a few weeks behind?
3: Well... We are a few weeks behind in the sense that testing in the United States hasn't really been very robust. Um, The CDC encountered some problems with the earliest tests that they manufactured. They sent them out to some labs across the country, and the labs couldn't validate them. They They were getting inconclusive results, so that kind of put us back. And there is a lot of problems with testing where it was only available at a few labs like their capacity to test wasn't very big and then the cdc had um, the their case def- definition for those who qualified for the test was really narrow it was just um, limited to people who were who had been traveling to areas that that were that were where the virus was spreading but uh, on your question is like how generally to contain like yes testing is like we need to know where this thing is to control it Perhaps a good example of a virus that was like really successfully contained was SARS in two, 2003. That outbreak, you know, it's a, it's a similar, it's a part of the same family of viruses. Um, that outbreak was basically eliminated within a year, which is amazing. Um, and the way that happened was, was through isolation of Known cases. So if you get sick, you know, if you put someone in isolation, eventually the human immune system kicks in and destroys the virus. So, and if you can get everyone with the virus away from everyone else, then you know, eventually, you know, the human immune system will will do it, or the virus will kill the person. Unfortunately, um, but there were a few things about SARS in two thousand three that are really hard to replicate here. One is SARS in two thousand three got people sicker. It was more likely to give people a pneumonia, which is you know a really severe symptom of an illness. So those people are more easily identified. This virus seems to hit people, and they can have a whole range of symptoms, from mild symptoms to medium and then severe. And so, you know, if someone has pneumonia they can easily go to the doctor and be contained because the symptom is so obvious. A lot of the problem here is that the symptoms of this look like a common cold, they look like a flu. People are used to, you know, having some sniffles or a cough and like going out and doing things. And then at the same time, like the testing capacity in the United States hasn't been at a point where everyone who thinks they might have been exposed to this for some reason or another can go and get tested for coronavirus like that this that capacity hasn't existed. And you know at the same time, you know you probably wouldn't want to overwhelm the system with people who want to get coronavirus tests who you know originally this was this was travel related. so like why should the CDC allow every hypochondriac to get tested when they don't have that many tests? Balancing all these things is really hard. but I've been talking to epidemiologists, all this week so far and they keep emphasizing we need to know where this thing is we need to know like the background rate of of like the the most extreme cases always rise to the top we know who has died we know who is like most severely infected but we need some more surveillance to know like just how prevalent this is
2: you got something really important which is that this is particularly challenging because coronavirus looks like a lot of other things And so one, that is challenging from an epidemiological perspective, but also challenging from a public health perspective, because I think one of the challenges that we're facing right now is that there's the actual virus and then there's the societal, economic, political impact of the virus. And that the secondary impact, the danger of that is panic and the abject panic that I I think I've seen people listening as podcasts are probably seen. That seems to me far more concerning because panicked people are not smart people, and that's generally how humans work. So I am interested in hearing from you some of your thoughts on how is that panic impacting testing? You know, for example, people who are like, I have a runny nose. Like, What is this? Is this that? Especially one of the other challenges is that in the United States, the examples we have of a cross-borders epidemic— are diseases that are either far worse or far more likely to be happening within a specific population. For example, the beginnings of the HIV crisis in the United States, a part of that was like, well, it seems to be those people's problem. Day-related
0: immunodeficiency, (sighs) the original name for HIV, if folks aren't familiar with that. Yeah. When it was
2: first identified and people started writing about it in June 1981, it was like, this is happening to homosexuals. This seems to be a homosexual related disease one that wasn't entirely true at the time but people didn't really know that but the idea that like okay this is a separate population and it which seems, means you can identify a risk factor right but also because of how hiv and ultimately aids works it's, it's a collection of symptoms which is sort of like what's your t-cell count are you starting to develop like opportunistic infections like there are things that you're like okay all of these things together tell us something with coronavirus we don't seem to have that at all
3: coronavirus is a unifier
2: yeah, I mean, finally. We were joking a, two weeks ago on the podcast how everybody has had this, like, Vox flu. And I remember, like, my first thought upon getting sick was like, I- is this coronavirus? And obviously, the flu is an actual killer. This is somewhat it's of flu a flu season, It so. is flu season, and so how are... How are researchers thinking about this? And especially because I think that contributes to the panic that if you hear someone sneeze in a restaurant, Mm -hmm. people's first reaction should probably not, you know, it's the old saying, if you hear hoofbeats, it's probably horses, not zebras. But in this case, it could seemingly be either.
3: Yeah. So this is something I've been trying to think a lot about and... It's a hard thing to communicate, like, the risk of this. And and the way to think about the risk is that the risk is public. So this is a virus that you know, can attack any population of human being. But the risk isn't evenly distributed of, like, who is most likely to die from this. It seems pretty clear from the evidence so far that older people are the ones who get the most sick and they are the ones most likely to die. And actually, with scientists are unsure, like, why children don't seem to be very heavily affected by this. So you have to think of the risk as public. Like, you can get this disease and be okay. It's, a, it's It could, you know, cold and flu-like symptoms, you will survive. Most people, I think it's around 80% of people, have mild or moderate symptoms of this. But you could pass it on to somebody who will die from it. And I think that's what you're starting to see now, that this virus can find the most vulnerable people. So the the people who died in in Washington state were in a nursing facility, and they had other complications and other health issues. But that's the kind of danger of this virus is that it can overwhelm our health system and, and make some sick people even sicker. It can find the vulnerable if we don't take means to slow its spread. And so the risk, like, yes, flu exists, that kills people, you know, the exact virulence of this virus, the exact rate at which it kills people is is not extremely well set. It seems to be between 1% and 2%, but, you know, without better surveillance, it's hard to put an exact figure on that. Part of the risk, too, is just overwhelming our healthcare system with, you know, if no, I was on the phone with uh, ron Klein, who's who's Obama's um Ebola Czar. And he's like, hospitals don't have, like ten thousand beds sitting around. So if there's like, a sudden influx of people who are, you know if this virus finds the vulnerable and there are a lot of vulnerable people like 1 to 2% of americas a lot of people um you know if the virus finds the vulnerable it be it's a public risk it, it it harms our healthcare system it harms people with the flu who then are going to the hospital with the flu and there's no bed for them it harms people who have you know elective surgeries that they want to get done soon and they have to postpone those the risk is less that you are going to die the the risk is chaos
0: so i want to talk about this because it it does on the one hand there's what jane you were talking about about the panic not only like having kind of knock on you know Obviously, the stock market, after having been very insensitive to the early warning signs of coronavirus, has reacted very, you know, like reacted very alarmedly in the last week, you know, to some of the kind of political concerns about what happens if people just kind of generally feel that they, you know, that they can't trust anybody. But on the other hand, Brian, it seems like what you're talking about, in terms of the the end state that would be particularly bad for those who are most likely to die if they contract this disease, could be induced by over panicking and like people checking themselves into hospitals who don't have severe symptoms, people buying face masks who aren't necessarily in a position where that would actually help contain the spread of the disease. But it could also be caused by under panicking. And, you know, people who are, in fact, contagious, but asymptomatic or under symptomatic going through their daily lives because they've heard the virus isn't that bad right. and thereby infecting people who are more vulnerable. How do the experts you're talking
3: to kind of navigate? That? I think there's a key to think about this when you're preparing for an outbreak like this you it's natural to think of like how to protect myself but you should also keep in mind the question how do i protect others and that includes not hoarding Stuff you don't need. So, you know, the US Surgeon General is pretty adamant like, you do not need face masks if you're not sick. Like, face masks are to protect other people from you. They're not to protect you from other people. And so, if you hoard those masks, and especially the ones that are used in healthcare settings, the ones that seal around the mouth and like really do help pr- protect healthcare workers from infectious diseases, then, you know, that is not helping other people. And helping other people could also mean getting your flu shot, so you don't get the flu and then take up healthcare resources from other people who, who might need it in the coronavirus outbreak. It means also if you have like a sniffle, like stay home, because if you so happen to have this coronavirus, and to be clear, like it's not spreading everywhere. And and also to be clear, we're not exactly sure where it's spreading because of the testing, which is a hard thing to manage. Like so, you know, if you have a sniffle, your first thought shouldn't necessarily be, oh, coronavirus. You know, you should think about your situation and what's happening in your community. But if you have, if you do get a little sick or if you do feel sick, you know, stay home. Like that is to protect other people. It's an inconvenience. It's for sure an inconvenience. Um, And we need to prepare for those inconveniences. We need to prepare for, so, you know, Dower, you asked before about like how healthcare workers think about stopping outbreaks like this. But really, like where where we're at now is, you know, a lot of epidemiologists I've been talking to say, you know, it's not going to be contained at this point because it does seem to be spreading in communities and it does seem to spread kind of silently. But the measures that could be put into place can be put into place to slow the spread. And they call it about flattening the curve. So you know, you could have a sudden spike of infections, which really would wreak havoc on our healthcare system because there aren't a lot of open beds in hospitals, but you could potentially spread that spike out over a longer period of time. And that could be a goal that a lot of communities that are facing this coronavirus look toward. And you know, a lot of the ways to get that spread of the outbreak to spread wider and not to just peak at one point are inconveniences. It's, you know, shutting down um, public events. It's like basically they call it social distancing and the idea is to get human beings six feet away from each other. So it involves like canceling concerts. It could be it could involve, um, you know, your, your child's daycare being closed. It could involve like places mandating t- telework. It could involve... I don't know, um, transit times being staggered or, or things like that, um, an inconvenience might be placed on a lot of people to slow the spread of this and to not overwhelm our systems and cause like the biggest problem of an outbreak like this, which is not—it is death, but it's also just chaos.
2: I think we should take a break, and then I want to talk a little bit more about that social impact and how, how we actually, in this country, deal with an outbreak.
4: b u r r o w dot com slash weeds for fifteen percent
2: off burrow dot com slash weeds so can you tell us a little bit more about because it is not the federal government who handles kind of outbreaks in cities and in states? Because I think that there's been a lot of people looking to the CDC and obviously uh, President Trump put Mike Pence in charge of the response to this operation, which did not fill many people with confidence for a number of reasons, because a lot of the states that need to respond to this, California, Washington state, there are a lot of people in those states who are have already been trying to think about how to deal with this. So I'm interested to hear what yeah. is that? How, how is that power shared?
3: This is a classic 10th Amendment case of a power not given to the federal government is given to the state. So public health is largely... In the realm of states and big cities, which have the power to enforce public health, so the the federal government will do things like maintain the CDC, which is going to provide hopefully like really good information and and the best guidance it can to the communities. It can provide funding. It can help make sure like there's um like um a, a national stockpile of medical supplies to give hospitals in their time of need. It can do supportive things like that and give advice, but. The enforcement of public health care is at the city and state level, and they actually do have a lot of power. So, a public health department has police power to enforce quarantine orders. You know, they can shut down they can shut down schools, they can shut down um, mass gatherings. And It is interesting, and this might be interesting and also chaotic to look at because the public health system in our country is is um, piecemeal like this. It's it's like a quilt. There are different laws in every state. There's different politics in every state. And there are different levels of decision makers. So any local school board can shut down a school. You know, They don't have to listen to the federal government or even necessarily their state. I'm, I'm pretty sure any local school board can do that. So you might see people starting to make decisions that are Different than the communities next to them. Um, New York City, which has a really strong health department, can impose different restrictions than Boston or Philadelphia or Alabama. Um, and you see this with a lot of outbreaks where the decisions that might come through, might be more influenced by politics and optics than it is like science. So if you remember in 2014 during Ebola, there was this nurse coming back from Africa who had done like heroic work treating people. She had not gotten the disease. She wasn't sick. She wasn't exhibiting symptoms. No healthcare professional said this woman was a risk, but still Chris Christie when he was governor at the time, mandated her into quarantine in isolation after she returned from Africa. And she said her um, her rights were violated. She actually sued and got a settlement out of that. But, you know, something a little disconcerting was I was talking with a healthcare professor a few days ago who has done some research on state quarantine laws and just finds that they're, like, a lot of them are really, they haven't been updated in a while. So, like, not all state quarantine laws will protect you if you have to stay home um, from work.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm looking at this review of state laws from 2016 and 2017. You know, only 20% of states have that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this is in a context where, like, Only 10 states went back after the Ebola outbreak, which really seemed to be a moment where policymakers realized that state and federal quarantine regulations hadn't really been updated in a Mm -hmm. while because the last few infectious, you know, like SARS, I think, was the real last infectious disease Mm -hmm. panic before that. And that's 2003, which was over a decade prior and was contained before it hit the U.S. in substantial yeah, you know, in yeah. way. So it really we should we'll we'll like drop this into the show notes because it's both a good starting point for what laws are in your state and a good way of pointing out kind of where the very real obstacles you're, that an affected individual would be put under
3: are. Yeah. And there are real, you know, considerations about civil civil liberties. And like I said, um, public health is like is the legal power that states have. Like they could, you know, I'm not saying this will happen. Like I feel like everything that will happen with this outbreak will start off on a voluntary basis, you know, so voluntary quarantines of family members of the of the infected and things like that. And I would guess, you know, a lot of people you should think of if, if it comes to this, you should think of it as like your civic duty to to follow orders from your local public health department. Kind of like you would think of jury duty. Like it sucks to have to stay at home for two weeks because you were in contact with someone who who got this virus, but you're you're doing that to protect other people. But the law allows like. You know, a police officer can like check on you and make sure you're staying at home. You know, that could happen in some places. Um I, I'm I'm not sure if it come. I'm not sure it's ever come to that. But like, you know, I think like the classic example in New York City is like typhoid Mary. I right. Think she I was just a case yeah. of Mary Mallon. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah.
2: interesting because there's been a lot of one, was she just a scapegoat essentially mm-hmm. for typhoid, which is a disease of are you in a high population density area with very poor sanitation? Congratulations, you're in early 20th century New York. And so, yeah, it's it's interesting thinking about how we have these specific examples, but especially at a time in which our news has been so effectively nationalized, if something is happening in the D.C. area, I will hear about it eventually. But I think that a lot of people do look to the federal government and do think of them as being the authority on this. And then you have the federal government essentially saying like this is up to the states. Do you think that there's is there any concern that that kind of back I mean and I forth... don't want
0: I do want to make sure that we're clear about this. Like while it is true that a lot of the specifics of things like employment compensation are exclusively state level. After the Ebola outbreak in 2014, the CDC did review its federal quarantine regulations and put out a new version of those in early 2017, and it's actually it is very interesting and moderately whiplashy to go from reading about the kind of Right now, the tone of a lot of media coverage looking at the Trump administration is, were they really prepared? Are they doing enough? And then to go back and look at the articles written when this new quarantine regulation was being finalized, in which the tone is, wow, this is an awfully aggressive regulation. Can we really trust the Trump administration with these kind of powers? Won't Mm -hmm. they use them overly aggressively? But it is true that the CDC is capable of doing more to enforce mandatory quarantines than it has in the past. That does create this weird kind of compensation gap, where, as our former colleague Sarah Cliff has been documenting, people are placed under these federally mandatory quarantines for testing and then get these massive hospital bills because their state doesn't cover
3: that. And to be clear about this, yes, the CDC does have quarantine power, especially, particularly of um, travelers. So right. if you're entering the country, the C- this that's the CDC. And also the CDC, like there is, these legal experts I've been talking to, like if they deem a local authority isn't doing enough to stop an outbreak they can they can like you know pull rank and and go in and and take over which i i'm i'm told is 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 very rare and probably unlikely to happen
0: yeah it, it's definitely true that there this is all kind of reliant especially the extent brian to which you know what you were saying earlier about it's going to start voluntary and only if it really ramps up will this become a matter of like policy diktat. but mm-hmm the extent to which people are willing to do voluntary activities does rely on their trust in government. And while there is existing political science research that shows that like people's kind of gut reaction in cases of an infectious disease outbreak is to put more trust in people they consider to be apolitical experts like the CDC, Mm -hmm. that there are open questions about how that gets refracted if people already fundamentally distrust the government. And one Mm -hmm. of the dogs that I've been a little bit surprised hasn't barked yet is – There is, at this point, kind of strong incentive either in a Trump critic media atmosphere or in a pro-Trump but anti-quote-unquote deep state media ecosystem to encourage the idea that what officials are telling you is wrong, the idea that coronavirus is a hoax as like Trump
2: kind of sort of said at one point during a rally. Yeah, it was was like the Democratic reaction was a hoax, but then you're hearing from people – I think it's almost impossible to have this conversation without talking about the political context. And I think that there are a lot of people, I mean, when people are talking about the economy or people are talking about this, there is a like, and how will this impact the election in November? And so you see uh, conservative commentators like Rush Limbaugh and others basically saying, like, this is not as bad as the flu. Like, this is just something out to get Trump or something like that. And like, that is not true. But it is also true that there is a context here that people need to acknowledge when they're talking about it. You can see it in the number of press conferences that Trump has attempted to have and the efforts to rely on the CDC while the CDC has had its funding cut and and putting the CDC front and center in this conversation as being like, you may not trust the White House, but you can trust the CDC. I think we should take another break. But I'm interested, I think, for our listeners— I think it might actually be helpful to just go through some really basic questions and answers about what individuals and families, particularly, can do if you are concerned about this. So let's take a break.
1: Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great
2: First and foremost, we talked about this a little bit, but how should everyday normal people prepare or prevent coronavirus?
3: The biggest thing that could potentially happen is is those social distancing measures. Like I doubt you know, a whole entire city in the United States would be put under quarantine like, you, you know, you see in China. Like, right. those are... Those We're not un- going
2: to have speakers on sidewalks yelling, stay in your home, which is what is happening yeah, in Wuhan, that, which that is... Yeah,
3: seems, that seems hard to replicate here. But I could see, you know, like schools being closed, daycares being closed telework encouraged. So those are things to prepare for. Like, So if there are public places where you have to come into contact with a lot of people and you're going to be told to avoid those public places where you have to come into contact with a lot of people. Like, how do you prepare for that? The CDC has recommended that parents call their schools and ask them about, you know, what are your plans? Like, do you offer any teleschool? In the case that, you know, we're not going to send kids to school for a few weeks, you should figure out, like, what you're, you know, if you're employed, you know, like, what is your company's policy on travel? And what is your company's policy on telework? And can you miss, and this, okay if you miss work, and if you can't be there, you know, like, can you miss work if you're if you can't leave your home um, I, I think there are some other precautions in in the in the realm of like not just protecting yourself but protecting other people so like think about like what you really truly need and like what you should and shouldn't hoard so you know listen to the surgeon general when they say you don't need face masks unless you're sick you know when people are going to stores like stock up on things like one it's probably like good to have like that stuff in your home always like to have a few gallons of water you know and uh Um, Have some medication. Um, And there's potentially an argument for, like, if you're going and buying, like, some things now, that if this really hits, like, you won't need it then and and those materials could be used then, you know, if there aren't shortages. But otherwise, like— you know, I feel like people are looking for like a hey, like is there like a magic necklace I can wear to ward off coronavirus and no. honestly, you know, the other good precautions are just like good hygiene, like wash your hands, um, you know, disinfect your phone every once in a while. You can just do that with rubbing alcohol. Cough into your into the crook of your into the crook of your elbow and stay home if you're sick and Honestly, it's really, it's kind of simple. It's like just basic hygiene and, you know, eventually you might be asked to stay away from other people and to try to prepare for the chaos that might enter your life if you were asked to stay away from other people.
0: So I know that Iglesias has like this galaxy brain theory that this is going to be the thing that convinces white-collar businesses that they don't actually need to have people in the office. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you have a mass telework policy and no workflow is disrupted, but like it does seem that a lot of the reason that the elite discourse has been so sanguine about this prospect is that a lot of white-collar workers currently do have enough of an infrastructure that right. like, they don't need to go into the office. Whereas, but if
2: you are a, a metro train driver, right. if you work in the service industry, if you are – and and holler at my service industry peeps. like And I think that that's a really good point because I think that when you talk to people who are in – journalism or media or the impact or the idea of like, oh, you know, I have to work from home for two weeks sounds actually kind of OK. And I think for a lot of people, it is just simply not possible.
0: Right. And I think there are kind of two particular categories of people who I'm really interested in the public health ramifications of. Because like, for one example, you have gig economy workers who are generally informally employed in the service industry. So they are likely to see less demand for their services, which means they're less likely to make money. And also they don't have health insurance, probably. They certainly don't. Rather, they certainly don't have health insurance through their employer because they don't have a formal employment situation. And this is kind of as many jokes as there are, you know, in like San Francisco about now we're going to learn which techies never learned to cook because they're used to Uber Eats. Like the drivers who make their living off Uber Eats are in a, are vulnerable in a totally different way now. And the other question that I have is like home care workers who... Are definitionally supposed to be taking care of the people who are most vulnerable if they are infected with coronavirus, but who are obviously still obligated to like provide that care to those people. And so, how do you deal, from a public health perspective, with the fact that the people who are on the one hand most likely to like, you know, who are on the one hand. Going to continue to be interacting with people even under a general lockdown, or on the other hand, whose economic well being is really dependent on exactly the kind of activities that a lockdown would stifle.
3: Well, this is, I I think there's some research on this. This is why there's some thought that like quarantines and restriction of movement doesn't really work because people just, a lot of people will ignore it because they have to. Because they, you know, and this is not an authoritarian state like China where they can, you know, use their vast surveillance state to make sure people are staying in their homes um so i th- i think that's that's a real challenge and and i think in the the interesting like big theme that you touched there is that an epidemic outbreak reveals just so many cracks in society you know you're already seeing people like unsure you know when they've gone to get their coronavirus test like unsure of what how to pay um, you know and even if they don't have the coronavirus like if you think you like, i read a story in the Miami Herald about Someone who who went to their hospital get tested ended up getting a flu test and they had the flu and then had a three thousand dollar bill for a flu right. test. So,
2: which for most people would say, ah, I will simply not go get tested. Yeah.
3: So, uh, you know, I don't know what the answers are to those things, but these are maybe interestingly and productively a lot of this could inform this ongoing presidential cycle. So candidates will have like real. This will expose a lot of cracks in society, and and you know I was talking before about this hitting the most vulnerable in terms of like their physical health, but this also hits the most vulnerable in terms of their status in American society. Right.
2: One thing that I want to get to is that this is a this is a global issue, and so you know the countries that have been hit hardest, China obviously, but also Italy, and there are cases that are you know there are, I think there are five cases in Mexico, there are cases in Canada. Like we are going to see the disparate impact that this will have on disparate healthcare systems. The concern about the American insurance system is a massive one, especially for anyone interested in traveling to this country. And so I think that we're starting to learn a little bit about how each country is handling this. Mm-hmm. Um, the Chinese example is kind of the, this is not how to do this, as in deny it for a really long time and then sort of accept it and then deny it some more. But I'm interested in your thoughts. Looking at how different countries, looking at how, say, the European Union is handling this, looking at how the Italian government, which appears to have reacted by just you know, being like, don't go to church, which is challenging in Lent. That's something else because we're entering into a season of a lot of religious festivals that, again, all involve lots of people being in the same place. And so I'm really interested to see how, for instance, the Vatican would handle Easter. Saudi Arabia is telling people, like, you are not allowed to go on Hajj. Like, you are having daily religious life impacted in a way that it has not been on a global basis in a while. So I'm interested to see, first, how you think different countries are handling this. And second, in each of these countries, what are the scenarios for how this outbreak ends?
3: Yeah, so I haven't necessarily studied like each country's response, but... seeing the kind of frenzied responses from from different countries kind of also shows like why this is probably not going to be contained because um, one country could be really good and then, you know, like I think Iran is having some like some real problems. Um, something I would really advocate for for listeners and, and for anyone thinking about this is to, you know, as we see the numbers of people infected around the world explode, like not to look at those numbers and, and, and fear them, but like to maybe also have a little bit of compassion um you know these are people if you're infected with this you know just think of one person who has been infected with a disease that's new to science and that's scary and, you know, you're, and when you get infected with that, your family members are not allowed to leave the home or they're supposed to be in quarantine because they're, because they're told that they might be carrying the virus too, you know, just like try to take that like one family and just like multiply times like 70, 80,000. And, you know, there's this, this is a real human disease and it's a real human conflict and uh, not conflict, but it's a real, it's a universal human problem. And I don't know exactly about, you know, like how each country is is dealing with it but this like a scenario that is like emerging is that this actually doesn't get contained it doesn't go away um it can hop you know around the world as much as it wants from Yeah can you, you know, um
2: I know I'm sure We've heard the like, you know, at some point like seventy to eighty percent of the world's population yeah. could have this. Can you explain what that means in a way that doesn't sound like World War Z? Yeah, so that <laughs> yeah. that I think
3: that comes from one Harvard epidemiologist and and you know, not like I said before, a lot of the like the parameters of this virus are not like right. extremely well set and known. But there are a few scenarios that that I've been told that could happen, and, and the best case scenario is out is out the door. Um, the containment of this thing to the places where it originated. It's, it's already done. So a few things could happen. One is that it could show some seasonality effects where as temperatures rise, um, this is how it happens with the flu. For a variety of reasons, things become less contagious. Certain viruses become less contagious in, in the summer months. <laughs> I know Donald Trump was like, this, the summer will kill it. The heat will kill it. But um, when when in higher humidity environments, um, I, I think it's the case that viruses don't live as long on surfaces and also like the human immune response response is a little better. So it could be the case where we get like the Northern Hemisphere, at least, gets a break in the summer. And then this kind of goes into the Southern Hemisphere when they have their cold and flu season and then kind of comes back. So the scenario is like that seasonality kind of buys the world some time. And maybe by next year, there could be a vaccine that could be broadly distributed. The vaccine race is is on. You know, we've spoken to several vaccine manufacturers who are hoping to get clinical trials in you know, the next several months, which is really, really, really fast. So, and I think there's also concurrent research in antiviral medications that might help slow the spread of the disease. So, like, we have to see in like the months ahead, like what natural pattern this virus um, takes. Because it's it's increasingly looking like this is not just an outbreak. This is going to be added to the list of coronaviruses that routinely infect humans.
2: Fantastic news. And if you'd like to discuss coronavirus while in voluntary or involuntary isolation, you can do so in the Weeds Facebook group. I'd like to thank Malachi Brodus, our engineer, Jeff Guild, our editor and producer, and Brian Resnick for helping us out this week. The Weeds will return on Friday.